Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, hi, John, and welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to have you along on what is an absolutely beautiful spring day here in Brisbane. Uh, Why don't we just start with you letting us know a bit about your current professional responsibilities. Oh, thanks very much, Richard. Hi, and how are you? And you're right about the spring day. It's absolutely beautiful. We are blessed here in this little state at the moment. And that's sure what most of the Melbournians and the Sydney siders would say as well. <laughs> good luck to us, you know. Um, so my current professional responsibilities. So I've got, I, I'm, I chair three boards. Uh, the first is a listed company called First Wave Cloud Technology. Been listed since 2016. I've been with the company for just over two years now as executive chairman. And in an exec where the executive capacity refers to you know, getting actively involved in their shareholder and shareholder and stakeholder comms, um, and that's a really interesting company um, trying to trying to develop trying to sell um, locally developed technology to a global market of SMBs via an international network of partners, and it's it's a really interesting company at a very interesting inflection point. Um, I also chair Uniquest, and Uniquest is a private company, but it's a part of the University of Queensland. It's the commercialisation company for the University of Queensland's intellectual property. That is the, prop- the IP that's generated by their researchers. Um, and it's a fabulous company. It's uh, certainly the leading commercialisation entity within Australia in, the, in terms of the tertiary or university IP area. And it's one of the top 10 in the world. Um, and it's been very successful, best known for... Ian Fraser's um, cervical cancer, cancer vaccine, Gardasil, um, which has provided m- most, uh, provided it unlike most other commercial uh, commercialization entities with a sort of an underlying uh, revenue that, revenue stream that's allowed it to become a bigger organisation and a better organisation. And that's a pleasure to chair that. Um, and the third company is a company I've just stepped onto the board of, and it's a fascinating company. It's called Inspect Real Estate. And it's a bit like um, realestate.com for rentals. In fact, they have a partnership with REA, um, which integrates uh, a, a sort of a, integrates an aspect of, of their rental system into the REA application. But um, a very, very interesting company with uh, a head, head office in Queensland, but with operations in New Zealand and in the UK and global aspirations. So... You know, that's, again, I just stepped onto the board and my only impression is it's really got a, it's a huge opportunity. Oh, that's excellent, John. And uh, interestingly, all three seem to be around technology and innovation. Has that been intentional on your part or is that just the way it's kind of worked out? Oh, I think it's where I spent 40 years of my life. You know, so, <laughs> like, you know, I grew up in a technology business at Data3. I was a founder of that business and then CEO for managing director for nine, for sorry, for 19 years and, um, I just know what technology does, and we've seen it in spades, haven't we, during COVID? You know, COVID's been the greatest inducer of technological change that, that I've seen in my whole career um, because there's, there's, there's so much need for it. So, yeah, they all are in the technology space, but, you know, show me a business these days that's not technology really in some part or in significant part. Oh, look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, are you looking to broaden out your portfolio with some uh, board roles in other sectors of the market or um, uh, do you feel that your dance card is pretty full at the moment? 
I feel like I'm dancing. Those three roles are pretty big roles. Fair enough. First wave one, which is executive chair role. So, and I, I'm very conscious. I think the the obligations of directors are very clear these days, and directors therefore have to do the job. And I think to do the job, you have to put in time. Mm-hmm. The chairs have to put in more times, and I just don't see how you can do. I can do beyond what I've what I'm doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, what I you know I, I I think, but I think it's interesting reflecting on that because I've you know at Uniquest for example, I was a board member. I've been on the board there for just this gain in my fourth year, so my chairmanship is really the second term with Uniquest. It sort of seems to have been a logical progression, but. I think being non-executive directors on companies is very is very attractive as well. So, you know, we'll see what comes in the future. I don't see myself being out of the business of doing what I'm doing for a long time yet. So it's a long way ahead. There's a lot, lot of opportunities ahead of us. Absolutely. Well, John, why don't we uh, sort of step back a little bit in time now and tell us a little bit about your backstory. So where, whereabouts were you born? I was born in Brisbane. Okay. Um, I've lived in Brisbane the majority of my life. I had a stint living overseas, I had a stint living in Sydney, and I also lived for a little while in Melbourne. Um, but the majority of my, my my sort of life has been spent in Brisbane. Um, I um, did um, went through the state government's uh, uh, education system, went to university at UQ, did engineering at UQ, civil engineering, uh, under a scholarship from the Brisbane City Council, joined the Brisbane City Council after I finished that. I had a five-year contract with them. I stayed for nine years. I started in design, civil design, meaning roadworks, drainage, et cetera. And then I went into construction, which was the best fun, you know, building stuff. It was just such good fun. You know, we we just, I sort of wanted to attack things differently. I was known as the young engineer who had, who had the most equipment he could possibly fit onto, onto, onto a construction site. Right. I just wanted to get jobs done quickly, you know, and get them under budget and get them ahead of the time scale. So that was really good fun. At the end of that exercise, I also um, was responsible for the council's quarrying operations, and they had two big quarries, one at Mount Cuther and one at Pine Mountain at Mount Cravat. And in that process, I computerised an aspect of, the, of those operations, and in so doing, I came in contact with computer companies because I wrote a tender and then hawked it around by simply knocking on doors of some of the big computer companies. In those days, IBM, NCR, Burroughs and ICL. And I sort of got a taste for the computer industry. And when I decided to leave the council and applied for various civil engineering jobs, um, at the same time, IBM was advertising for graduates to, to join their um, in, incoming program for roles within IBM, either in sales or in what they call systems engineering, which was the technical side of computing. So I saw this ad in my face every few days and hadn't got a response from the construction companies. I said, oh, bugger, I'll go and have a look have a talk and within 10 days, three interviews later, I got a job and I got in the computer industry. And from there, I just had a wonderful career. You know, I went from IBM to a little company called Power Clark and Associates, which was a software company I'd worked with while I was at, at IBM. And then that company became Data3 and I was there for 36 years um, and then left them in 2015. So, Wow, so, so you're, you're with Data3 for 36 years? 36 years. Goodness gracious, that is a long time. And, and so given that that was such a big part of your career, sort of, um, just talk us through a little bit about how that unfolded and you know, perhaps some of the key milestones um, during that period. Sure. Yeah, look, I mean, I joined it as a 14-person software development company. We were writing software um, for businesses in the sort of mid-sized businesses for what was then mid-range computing, which was the first sort of small business computers, that multi-user computers that became available from the computer manufacturers. 
and IBM had a had the best the best of that, and and it was the best in terms of you know being the technology foundation for small businesses because <clears throat> it was easy to use and didn't require a lot of technical knowledge. So we wrote software for that um, that business crew um, in 1984. So I joined them in 1982. In 1984, um, uh, the PC IBM PC was launched, which sort of validated the whole PC a PC sort of transition, um, and that was a major schism in terms of providing compute power to single people at the end of a sort of a line. Um, we took on um, a res- uh, we bought a business, which was a typewriter, typewriter reseller um, and, a, and a, an office equipment reseller. We then converted that to a PC distributorship, became one of the first IBM PC dealerships and got into hardware, selling hardware and selling associated services and and that, that business just grew. You know, in those days, there was margin. It's like 30% on the sale of a PC. It was a fabulous mm-hmm. time. That's we always got a lunch. Right. Yeah. Um, and, um, but on, on, I had a sales role. I ran the sales business. I became a partner um, in 1983, I think it was. So I was a partner of the formation of Data3 in 1984. Um, we then, that business grew, as I said, um, we got into healthcare in a pretty big way from a software point of view. We sold a business that's a software, health software business to a company called Travanol, which became Baxter Healthcare Services, which people may see their Baxter Healthcare vans running around the place delivering to hospitals. That software still runs in hospitals today. Um, so, but that that provided some funding for the business to think about doing other things. <clears throat> we expanded our PC sales operation into services, changed, extended the manufacturers that we worked with from just IBM through to Compaq and then to others and became a significant reseller of hardware, reseller of, of software and then provider of associated services to have those sorts of solutions implemented and, and supported. And that was the business that grew um, over a period of time and in Sort of in the mid-90s, we started the, we had eight partners in the business. They were varying ages with varying aspirations. And we looked for ways of, of sort of meeting the requirements of all the partners, which a lot, a lot of which was about an enabling exit. And we made a decision in, I think, about the early part of 1996 to list the company because when we looked at all the choices, it was clear to me that, clear to us, that um, ultimately companies were going to be listed even if they were, even if they were sold to someone who was interested in continuing to, to work them and, and, and grow them, or whether or, or whether it went to the second board before because there was a second board then before if it went to the second board before the primary board. So we made that decision in 1997. We listed the company. We had a bit of a short straw situation amongst the partners. Uh, I think it numbered six then with short straws to who was going to be the CEO. Um, we actually went through a facilitated process, but I call it short. <laughs> And I drew the short straw, and, I, and so I became the managing director and CEO of the business, um, which was fascinating. Lots of, you know, and, and when the listed company is just so different, and, you know, we just were flying by the seat of our pants for a while. We made all the mistakes you make as a, as a small listed company, and we recovered from all of them. Each of them was a very significant learning experience, and I stayed in that role for 19 years until I finished in 2015. So... And that company grew from being, a, I think it had about a $65 million, maybe less, after the acquisition of the piece of the typewriter thing, I think we were about $65 million in revenue. And I think when I left, we were about $850 million and we had about um, nine or 900 to 1,000 people in the business and all around Australia. So it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. The things you learn along the way, 
Um, you know, you learn the value of cash. Um, we had a couple. We had, we had three crises in that business. One is or two as a private company, and one as a listed company, which is pretty harrowing. Um, but I learned about the value of cash. I actually had to step in at one stage for three months and run the accounts receivable department um, because we weren't collecting the monies that were owed to us, and we put in a whole bunch of processes to to enable that. And even and right now until today, Data Three is a billion, one point six billion dollar company, I think now. Mm-hmm. In revenue terms, um, it um, it has no debt, and its working capital is generated by the difference in the time that customers pay it, the time it has to pay providers. And it's just a wonderful business model, a finely tuned business model. But you know, their their debt sales outstanding is twenty five and twenty six days, which is just best in class. So, wow. so you learned, you, I learned a lot about the value of cash. I learned the necessity for CEOs to ultimately make decisions, um, even given the role that advisors can play. We had a, an instance where a joint venture partner of ours was put into receivership and administration. We were a listed entity at that time, and it had very significant financial implications on us because we stood the, stood the whole debt that the, the joint venture had. Um, and I took advice from lawyers over a period of about three months, and that cost a lot of money but really didn't give me a solution until I sat down with the receiver and in 10 minutes we nutted out a deal and we then moved on and we, we were more successful after that. You know, so, But making the decision to move uh, is most important from a CEO's point of view. And the dangers of prevaricating are, are, are tremendous. So you just don't do that. You've got to make decisions and move on and even, even make bad decisions work as well as they can. So I learned that and I learned... I learned um, about the customer being centric to everything. You know, why do we exist? How do people get paid? They get paid because customers pay the company money for delivering services and products. So that customer centricity, given that Data3 did not have any unique products, that customer centricity is a cultural thing that was in, was in place in the business from when it was formed and is still a lasting legacy of the business in terms of the way that it operates today. So I guess those three things are sort of the things that you learn. But the, along the way, as I say, we did, we did about seven or eight acquisitions during that time. I reckon we probably got value from one or two of them, although a couple of them did give us an opportunity to get outside of Queensland, which was very important. But extracting value from acquisitions is difficult. And you don't, and you need to, you know, you need to make sure that you understand the potential impacts and you need to have time and resources on your side that can actually handle all of that. So, so I learned all about that. Um, and I learned about the ASX listed marketplace and how you, how you work with shareholders and how you work with the broking community. And I've just got, you know, my sort of overarching principle there is there's no story like the truth well told. So you, you have to always tell the truth, but the market needs to hear it in the best possible way. And that's exactly what we do. And I'm extremely transparent. Uh, I've got a reputation for giving more information than people actually want and with the fundamental belief that if people have more information, they'll make the right decisions. So whether they be investing decisions or partner decisions, whatever sort of decisions they are, you know, if they've got more information, they'll make better decisions. So they're the sorts of things that, you know, this little life over this last 40-odd years has, 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 has given me. Fantastic. Well, what a, what, what a great summation. And I suppose... Uh, you're looking at your LinkedIn profile whilst you were 
still as MD and CEO, you know, you were starting to have some um, board-related roles, chair of, you know, membership associations and different things. And then, but how, how did you manage that transition from, you know, MD, CEO to um, board director and chair? Because a lot of people find that very tough. Um, uh, and sort of how did you prepare for that and what were the, some of the sort of things that you encountered along that journey? Yeah, it's a really good question, um, and it is a challenge. No question about that, because the job of a CEO or any executive in a team is to understand the detail and to understand the information and make decisions based on that information. And directors don't necessarily get access to the same level of information. So, so <clears throat> to be comfortable as a, an executive in a, C, in a in a director role, you know, you need to have a lot of confidence in the executive team, basically. Um, but some people some find it very hard. I had a bit of a unique situation, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, during my career at Data3, for 20 years in parallel to being to being the roles that I was within Data3, I also was heavily involved in the, in the information technology industry from a representative point of view by, by associations and, and chairing advisory groups for governments and all this sort of stuff. So I was on, I think, maybe... Three or three or four state government advisory things. I led the, led an innovation council advisory for um, for Minister Carr during the Labor government at one stage. Um, so I had a lot of and and the industry association, the Australian industry association, information industry association, which was the the representative body um, for the industry. I I was on the board of that for ten years and chaired that for three. So. I had a lot of experience chairing things and being on sort of advisory boards. Um, where you can't do everything that's needed to be done and you do rely on others to do that sort of stuff. So you learn to sort of be a bit more hands-off. As well as that, in that sort of transition period right at the end there, I also, in parallel to my working career, I had a professional rugby league career, so I played as a professional career player uh, back in the 70s. I toured with Queensland. I had a tour with the Kangaroos in 1972 to the UK and, and France. So, so that career put me in a position where when the Australian Rugby League Commission was first formed in 2012, I was approached and offered the opportunity to be chair of that. So, and that was in 2012, right, three years before I actually finished at Data3. So I was in a chair's role there with a group of people who we'd never met before, we didn't know each other, and we had to gel as a board and then we had to govern the game. And that was a classic chair's role where you just need to, leverage all the capability that you've got within your board and within your executive team to get the outcome. So, so that was sort of, that sort of by the spanning the end of the data three thing, it sort of transitioned me into, and I'd start already started the transition of understanding how to be a director as distinct from an executive. And so I had a sort of a soft landing on that. I think it's much harder if you don't have that sort of transition and, and executives who are, who are keen to transition need to be, getting onto boards, be they advisory, be they not-for-profits or whatever, initially as non-exec directors and then potentially stepping up to chair, they need to start doing that during their career. Right. You know, a long time, quite a long time, I, I believe, before you actually get the, you know, you finish your, your day-to-day job. They're the important things. Right. I think the other thing I, I, I'm... I'm Disappointing, disappointingly for a lot of people, I'm a total independent. You know, I, I am independent in thinking. I'm independent in voice. I don't mind talking against the general general opinion if I believe it's wrong, but I have a totally independent stance. So I think there's a sort of a lens that you can look through as well 
and this is the responsibility of directors acting in the interest of shareholders in, in any company. The responsibility of directors is to act in their interests, and, and to do that, you've got to look, look through an independent lens. So I think I sort of, <clears throat> sort of inherently have that. So I think that's another thing that sort of made it a bit easier for me. Right. I, I, just to go back to the, the comment you made, um, which is such an interesting one, you know, this idea that if you are a CEO and you're looking to transition to a portfolio career to, to get some solid board experience, you know, multiple years of experience under your belt prior to that transition, it makes complete sense. And yet I think for a lot of people, they say, look, Richard, I'm 100% focused on my job. I can't have that distraction of board roles uh, because my my attention as CEO needs to go on the organisation that I'm working for. And so they leave it until they've actually exited and then go, okay, great, time to build out my portfolio. And um, and for a lot of people, that can take a long time. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, I, I, a great little uh, uh, comment there by you that's really sort of um, helped me to get my thinking around that. Um, so thank you. Um, all right, let's talk a bit about our first wave um, uh, now more specifically. So um, as you say, you joined the board uh, a couple of years ago. So just sort of, you know, what was the situation when you joined? What are some of the things that have happened since? And, um, you know, I know that there's a lot of stuff going on um, in the business at the moment as you're sort of um, looking to the future. Tell, tell us some more about all of that. Yeah, so first waves of cyber plays in the cybersecurity space. Um, in a in a nutshell, it um, takes the best available security services for email, web, firewall, endpoint, multi-factor authentication, etc. Takes the, the best in class from the vendors or the manufacturers of those. Uh, it's developed an intellectual property platform which takes those um, services. Um, makes them um, to really converts them to sort of all software so that they're virtualized, that it also multi-tenants them so that you can then have multiple using, users using one license, which reduces the price and delivers that to service providers, mainly telcos, for their downstream small to medium businesses. So if I'm a small to medium business, my issue is that <clears throat> I haven't got a lot of money and I haven't got any technical resources, but I'm very exposed because 43% of today's cyber attacks are occurring on SMBs. Mm -hmm. um, so I need to protect myself. I've got exposures in emails that go in and out. I've got exposures in all my web, web accessing and web traffic. I've got exposures in my network from a firewall point of view. And I've got exposures in my endpoint devices being my, the mobile phones and PCs in the hands of individuals. So what I really need is I need that whole thing packaged up and secured. And if I can get world's, you know, the enterprise products to do that, then I'm getting the best there is available. And I think that's a pretty good proposition. So that's the proposition for the end user. And that's and, the, the and it's, right. And it's done and it's affordable. They're paying it as that's a monthly, idea, as yeah. monthly subscription or something like that. That's right. Yeah. Okay, sure. So so that's what it does. Um, uh, as a listed company, it's not making any money, it's burning money. So it's a complex situation. So you know, that's and the requirement has always been to secure more funding from shareholders to keep the business pursuing its opportunity, which is a global opportunity, and that's expensive as well. And as I said to shareholders when I first joined, my rationale for joining, maybe I talked to that first, because on face value, it's a risky job and it's a risky company because it's not making money, has consumed an awful amount of shareholder capital. 
and is only just starting to show the benefits of the, of the investments that are being made. So it was a risky position, but I looked at it and I said, so the proposition is, as I've just described, enterprise security services from best available vendors around the world on a platform in a service provider, one pane of glass, if you like, for the service provider to manage all these variety of services offered to the SMB globally. Cisco, a big part of that. Palo Alto Network's a big part of that. Fortinet, Trendmicro, et cetera. I know all those people. It's a global distribution thing. It's a global play. And I thought, why not? You know, this sounds like, and, and I can, and I have experience at the sort of operational level, but I have expertise at the board level from a shareholder point of view, and I can add value. So um, it took a while for, for, for that sort of, for us to sort of get to the position we ended up at, but um, but the rationale to me was really simple. And so the logic of it was really simple and I thought it could be really successful and I could help. So that's the sort of rationale thing for it. Um, you know, where we are at the moment, we're still, still not making money. We've raised about $50 odd million from shareholders. That's a lot of money in Australia. It's still, you can still regard it as, a sort of, as, the, as the brokers who do the analysis over, regard it as a speculative play, which it still is. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, there's a lot of excitement about that too because you're trying to crack down big walls, you know, and everything we do, we get confronted by issues that we as a team have never, ever counted before, so you've got to work your way around it. And, and there's been a constant narrative that we've had to provide and we have provided to shareholders about the journey that we're on and why we're on this journey and why it's taking more time than everyone would have hoped and why it's taking more investment than everyone would have hoped. But that's the reality of being a software company located in Australia trying to take a product to the global marketplace. Mm-hmm. And so sitting here now in September 2021, uh, looking out towards the future of the business, so say the next sort of three to five years, what are some of the things that you're excited about for the company? Oh, I just, I think we've, we're really reaching a bit of an inflection point. Um, we've had less, slower uptake of the product through our global partners than we would have anticipated that. And there's a sort of a, there's a disconnect between their enthusiasm for the product, as I've just described it, because it's new revenue to them. It's easy to manage and reduces their cost to serve. So it's a plus, right? And it's in the security area targeting a new marketplace that they've only got to with sort of bandwidth, the, the small and medium business marketplace. So every partner around the world that we first present to and we do our initial proofs of value, they are just, they think it's fabulous, Right. Then you get inside it and actually building momentum inside the telco, but also building momentum at the SMB end has been quite, it just hasn't performed the way that we would have expected it to perform. And we had a bit of a light bulb moment uh, earlier this year when we looked when we looked at an, a, a companion product that we've got exclusive reseller rights for, which had a different sort of adoption model by the end user. And, it's, and to be very simple about it, when you, if you think about your iPhone, you turn a switch on to get a service, you turn a switch off to lose the service. If you think about it from the same point of view from the SMB, and then really if they want to do email security, then they should be able to flick a switch on or flick a switch off. That The product that I was talking about actually had what was called an opt-out rather than an opt-in model. So it was delivered with the switch on. Mm-hmm. So that the customer, the end customer had to actually turn the switch off in order not to have it. Now that's they were fully where that's being provided, but they had to actually take an action to not take the service, and that's a very different way proposition. Because if you think about your iPhone and apps, right, you have to actually make the decision to download the app, 
So it's quite true. So, to, so this causes to really rethink the whole adoption process. And, and through some work we did on our own bad and some work we did with some of our customers, we identified some friction in the software that made it difficult for the end user to actually get on board that easily. And, you know, if you're an SMB end user and you've got an offer for email, email security and then you've got to do something about it, which is even semi-technical, well, it's going to be a problem. So we've identified these friction points and we're now working on the software to remove these. It's really like reskinning aspects of the software and that'll be available and finished by the end of February or end of Q3 this financial year. And we think that's the sort of inflection point. So right at the moment, we're heads down and bums up just to get the work done that needs to be done to get a new version of the product to market. And, it, and we, we believe through the work that we've done and the advice we've received from, received from our partners that this will be the thing that actually gets to large-scale adoption. And that's really what the name of the game is. You know, as a company not making money, therefore not in the dividend end of the sort of ASIC-listed companies, you've got to show growth you need, and you need to show high rates of growth and that's the gateway, we think, to high rates of growth which would see a significant change in the fortunes of the company. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's uh, for a, a non-technical person like myself, uh, I find these conversations fascinating because I'm thinking, why on earth, if I had this solution, would I want to turn it off, Right. If I, if I, you know, why would I want to compromise security by turning something off? Uh, so it makes complete sense, if I understand you correctly, that instead of needing to turn it on, it's already on and I can just leave it on, correct? Yeah, correct, correct. Uh, yeah, but at the end of the day, what SMBs are really good at doing is not wasting money. Yes. Right? So if they don't feel that the service, or if there's, a, if there's a situation where they have to cut some cost, then they'll look at things that they don't see there being an impact of doing and, and It's a bit like an insurance policy. You know, if you don't have to make a claim, then your insurance policy sort of becomes a bit of an expense. And consequently, if you don't show the SMB what's actually happening in their environment and the email phishing attacks, for example, that are being stopped in their environment, then they they don't see value and they can turn it off. So that's part of this part of this refurbishment we're doing is to actually give the end user the information that's actually happening which will cause them to see great value in the product and to continue to keep it on. So we need need, while we can deliver it as on, we need to create value in that proposition that keeps it on. I understand. Well, John, that's been a a great conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed uh, learning more about your background and about First Wave. Just before we wrap it up, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, John when he's uh, not working. What are some of the things that you do to keep the petrol tank full? Yeah, that's yeah. I, I think it's a very interesting question. Again, I've always I've always worked hard professionally, um, and I continue to do that with the roles that I've got. But I've got you know, I've got four grandchildren now. I've got four kids. They're all in Brisbane, um, having two of them having been you know, over the around the world. Um, but everyone's come back here and settled over the last sort of five years, and it's a fabulous time personally. Um, I'm I'm just. Ex- I, I train a bit, you know, so I'm pretty fit. Um, uh-huh. An enthusiasm for being fit and being strong and being, you know, vital because um, I think that's important. I think it sharpens you to, to, to do whatever you're doing. So it's really, you know, it's really about, you know, how do you keep, how do I keep um, sharp? How do I maintain my strength and energy for grandkids? Because they're, you know, they're fantastic. And how do I help uh, help my family also be as, as you know, as, um uh, have as good a life as I've had and how can they 
a benefit from what they do. So I've got you know, my son, my eldest son's in a business of his own. My youngest daughter's a solicitor with one of the big firms in Brisbane here. Um, my eldest son, my youngest son um, is finding a new career in, in sport, which is really interesting. And my eldest daughter, she had a big job overseas with Thomson Reuters for, for years operating out of London and Hong Kong and New York. And she's back here doing consulting and raising two kids. And it's just a really lovely mix of things. So, so that's how I spend my time and I want to live for a long time. Oh, that's excellent, John. And when uh, our border travel restrictions uh, finally end, where are you most looking forward to travelling overseas on holidays? I've got to go back to Italy and got, right. to, go to, got to go back to London. Okay. All right. Yeah, there are two places. How far? Tomorrow would be too late, right? So (laughs) got to happen quickly. Get vaccinated. Yes, indeed. All right, John. Well, look, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation and have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you very much, Richard. Okay. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.